Well, good morning. Uh, I do highly recommend that conference. Uh, apologetics is just the, uh, the discipline of being able to articulate our faith and engage in those uh, conversations, which would be most helpful, uh, especially around uh, topics of religion and politics. Seems fascinating. Uh, all the details are out in the lobby or online. I want to welcome you here also, uh, along with Amy. My name's Matt. I'm the pastor here of the church, and it's great to have you here with us. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we are partway into a series called Nineveh. It's looking at the ancient city of Nineveh through uh, two books of the Bible in the Old Testament, Jonah and then Nahum. Uh, we are three weeks into the book of Jonah. And so we are going to turn our attention there. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can read along or listen as I read. Uh, the verses will be up on the screen after. Uh, I would like to begin with a word of prayer, though, and then we'll dive in to see what God has for us this morning in his word. So please join with me. Lord God, thank you so much for this time and this place. I uh, thank you, God, that we can gather here uh, in freedom, uh, Lord, with the expectation that you will speak to us, God, that your, your word, the Bible, is written so that we might benefit, so that we might understand ourselves more as human beings and understand you more as God. Uh, I pray in particular, Lord, uh, through this section of Jonah where he is, he is falling to the depths of the ocean and you save him, I pray, God, that in, in that we would come to understand your salvation all the more. And Lord, that you'd help me to, to explain things well in accordance with your truth. And so please, Lord, work in us now and protect us as we are here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin uh, with a name that uh, is probably going to be familiar to you. Uh, it's an author, one of the most uh, famous these days uh, authors in the world. Uh, her name is J.K. Rowling. Uh, you probably know her. She's written the Harry Potter series. Harry Potter, one of the most successful uh, book series ever. Uh, the last Harry Potter book uh, had the largest advance printing of any novel ever. 12 million copies were printed. Uh, they were sure that they would sell, and they did, and they had to print more. Uh, J.K. Rowling herself is a very wealthy woman now. She's worth over a billion dollars with all of the theme parks and toothbrushes and everything else. That's Harry Potter. Uh, she is the epitome of success. And yet, I want to read to you her words from a commencement address she gave at Harvard back in 2008. She said this, Before Harry Potter, my life had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded. I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it was possible to be in Britain without being homeless. But, she added, I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena, writing, in which I believed I truly belonged. In short, she's articulating something that we see over and over again, that her success was built upon her failures. Uh, this is something that we see in life and even in the Bible. It seems that many times it's not until people get to their lowest point that things begin to change for the better. In J.K. Rowling's case... It's the, the resolve that she found in that time of, of difficulty and struggle that she, she pulled herself together, she focused, and she was able to create something wonderful that went on to produce great success. But this dynamic is also seen in some of the most essential issues of our lives, in our faith. We see this in the issue of salvation itself, because it's not until we are truly desperate, desperate in our sin, that we see our need for God that we see that we need help and that things can change. This truth, this dynamic is depicted in vivid detail in our story this morning. Uh, we're going to see Jonah, who's been cast into the water and he's sinking down near death, drowning. 
And there, that's the point when he finally recognizes his hopelessness. And when he calls out to God, and then God saves him in a miraculous and just fantastic way. So it's an exciting part of an already exciting story. I'd like to read it for you, and then we're going to dive in and see what God has for us. Now, just to bring you up to speed, uh, it, Jonah has been told by God to go to Nineveh and to preach there. He has rebelled against God. So he's gone the opposite direction. God has tried to reach him. He sent a storm. Jonah's on a ship. And finally, Jonah, with a hard-heartedness, he says to the sailors, look, throw me into the water. Uh, throw me into the ocean, and uh, things will get better for you, and I'll basically take care of myself. He sinks down into the water. This is where we pick up the story. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And that's the end of our section. Not the end of Jonah, there's more, but for today, that's what we're going to deal with. And we're going to look at it uh, with one main idea and then three uh, supporting sort of arguments or points. But before we get there, I think it's important that we think about how we're going to approach the story. Because this is a fantastic story. One that, for many people, only makes sense if we see it as a myth or an allegory, right? It's, it's something that's told from the point of teaching. It's not something that actually happened. But that's not how I'm going to approach it. It's not what I think is the most faithful and accurate way to approach the story. We are going to look at it literally, and I'm going to give you three reasons why I think this is the best way to understand the story. So reason number one, we should read Jonah literally, meaning he literally went into a fish and came out three days later. Because, uh, number one, the story itself does not read like mythology. Uh, a myth generally has uh, great flourishes of detail. A lot of emphasis placed on the miraculous, amazing, fantastic parts of the story. If this were a myth, you would expect that much would be made of the size of the fish. Or the experience of Jonah going into the, to the fish. But that's not what we find. We find that it reads very much just like any other thing that happened. Any other historical event. Look at verse 17. There's just two sentences that describe what happened. Uh, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You get a sense that it's just the facts. This is just what happened. This is how it happened. It's amazing, but this is, this is what happened. That's the first reason. Uh, the second reason is that Jesus himself refers to this story literally. And we see this in Matthew 12. Uh, Jesus is talking about Jonah, and he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, that, that's him, Jesus, so will I be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so there Jesus is speaking about what will happen literally. 
He's saying, I'm literally going to go into the earth. I'm going to die on the cross, be in the grave for three days, and then come out of the grave. That's literally what's going to happen. In the same way, Jonah was literally in the fish. The two have to match up to make sense. It wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, I, I allegorically am going to go into the grave. That's not what he meant, and that's not what, what happened. So we have there from Jesus' own mouth, this is, he sees this as a real-life historical event. The third reason that we should read Jonah literally is that the God of the Bible is a God of miracles. So this means that if you have difficulty with that, you're going to have difficulty with a lot of the Bible. And fair enough, miracles are tough to wrap our head around. But what we see here is what we see throughout the Bible, that God very often intervenes in human existence with miraculous supernatural things, things that cannot be explained through natural means. Waters that part supernaturally, jars that fill with oil over and over again, the ministry of Jesus where people are healed, people are brought back to life, storms are calmed, all of that shows us that our God is a God of miracles. And so if we are to accept the essential climactic miracle of the Bible, which is that Jesus died and rose again, it's not so hard to accept that God somehow made a fish or a sperm whale or something that would sustain Jonah's life. This is an act of faith. It doesn't mean there's no evidence for it. It simply means that we believe that God can do things that are supernatural, that he originated the entire universe, and so he is a supernatural, miracle-working God. Having said that, it doesn't mean that as the church, we have to try to explain this using scientific means. By that, I mean there's, like, I spent a little bit too much time uh, this week uh, scrolling through the internet looking for stories of people who've been found alive inside of whales, and there are some of them. Uh, the most famous one is James Bartley. In 1891, he claimed that he had been swallowed. He was on a whaling expedition. He'd been swallowed by a whale. They caught the whale, and then a day later, when they were cutting open the whale, they found him unconscious in the whale, and he was all, his skin was all bleached, and, and this went on. And, you know, Newspapers carried the story, and many, many pastors started preaching Jonah, saying, look, this can happen. But we all know that can't happen, right? That was not a real story, because in a whale, there's no air, Right? We get that. It's a stomach with juices. You can't stay alive for a day without being able to breathe. In fact, the uh, sea captain's wife, he said he was on the ship, that the captain had passed away, but she had to come and say, look, this didn't happen. Okay? I know my husband. He would have told me if there was a guy on his sea voyage they found in a whale. This was a total, this was a joke, a hoax. The problem is that we look foolish as the church if we try to say something that's clearly impossible happens apart from God. The answer to this is the same thing for every miracle. It's God who did the work. God who was able to sustain Jonah's life. But just because it's a miracle doesn't mean we're not supposed to learn from it. There's many accounts in the Bible that are miraculous, fantastic, and yet in that there is essential truths that we can learn about ourselves and about God. In this case, in this case, this is a wonderful story of the saving work of God. And in that we are meant to see how it is that God still works in our lives. Not just to save us from drowning in the ocean, but we're going to see Jonah's fearful of more than just his physical death. And we too, in our sin, should be fearful of what it means to die apart from God. That's, that's Jonah's essential worry. So our big idea is going to pull these things together. The key idea for today is that the bottom is where we truly experience God's grace. The bottom, where Jonah finds himself, is where he truly experiences God's grace. And the three points are going to, uh, going to focus on the different experiences and things that Jonah realized there in that situation. So number one, 
Jonah finally realized that he was at the bottom. This took a while for him to realize. I mean, he was at the bottom actually even before he was down literally at the bottom because he had no hope. He was rebelling against God. If you read the first bit of the story, Jonah is hard-hearted. And everyone around him, the sailors, those of us reading it, we can see, look, Jonah, you need to, something's wrong. Things are not right in your life. And yet Jonah was willfully blind to the seriousness of his situation. He slept during the storm. He refused to repent of his rebellion. He didn't even ask God for help. When the sailors were praying to their gods, he was like, no, I'm not going to say anything. This is the first time here in the water that he speaks to the Lord. And look at what he says. Verse 2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. <laughs> Finally, Jonah, Finally, you're calling out to God. You should have done this long ago, right? He's there in the water. And that situation, he, he finally sees that he is utterly hopeless. Now, we have to ask the question, what exactly is Jonah's distress in this moment? It may seem obvious. You may think, well, he's in the Mediterranean Sea. There's a, a fish has eaten him. Of course he's in distress. I can't think of anything more distressing than that. But actually, uh, if you look closely, you'll see the fish has not yet come upon the scene. This is sometimes different than we tell the story. Usually with kids, we say he fell in the water, the, the whale got him, and then, then he repented. That's, that's not what we see here. If you look carefully, you'll see that he was first drowning, and then God sent the fish to save him. The reason it's a confusing, though, is because uh, in the translation, the word belly is used two times. And it's a bit confusing. Look here uh, in Jonah 2 verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. So the picture there is that God is in the belly. That first word in the Hebrew means an inner organ. So that's, he's there in the stomach of the fish. But he's remembering back to just moments earlier when he was in the water. And there he describes, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Now, that Hebrew word means center. So Jonah is not in an, in an organ. He's at the center of something. What? Well, not the fish. He's at the center of Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for, for hell or the um, underworld, Hades. What Jonah is saying is, is, look, I felt like I was going down through the water and that, that I was headed towards hell. That I wasn't just fearful of drowning. I was fearful of be, dying apart from God. He describes it in verses uh, 3, 5, and 6. So here it is. Uh, he says to God, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Look at the language. He's in open water. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. You can picture him descending down into the blackness, and then the, the weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. This is the sea floor coming up to meet him. So he's... He's in a dire state, but look at what he says. The language is more than just his physical death that he's worried about. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now that's language and imagery that at the time was associated with the underworld. That, that the idea is that you would be imprisoned in darkness forever. And here we see the essential hopelessness of Jonah. He has reached the, the bottom, not just the bottom of the ocean, but the bottom of his hope in life. And in this, we gain insight into our own predicament as human beings. Because I think we can relate to this feeling that Jonah has. Even if we're not drowning in the water, there's many circumstances of our life where we feel like we are drowning. And also like Jonah, 
there's certain times, like when he's on the surface, when he's in the boat, he seems full of strength and self-sufficiency. I mean, if you look at the way he acts, if you remember, there's a storm raging, he doesn't seem concerned. He speaks to the sailors and said, well, look, the best thing to do is to throw me over into the water. Like, I'll take my chances. I'll deal with it there. He's not really worried. He's not really concerned. He's not crying out to God. There are many times in our life when even though there are storms going on around us, even though the people around us are saying, look, there's, you need to, there's some problems. Like, you need to repent. You're in sin or there's whatever. And we turn a blind eye. We think we're fine. But then there's a day when for whatever reason, maybe it's the increased uh, circumstances like Jonah, maybe it's, it's something that we say, something that we can't take back, and, and the bottom falls out of our hope. And we realize how deep we are. And we are, we are genuinely distraught. And it's at that point that we see the truth. That this, this bottom experience is one where we look around and there is no hope for us. Where we are all our strength, all our self-sufficiency is gone. And I wonder if you can remember some times like that in life. I certainly can. Where, where I felt that I was so strong, and yet through my own decisions, through circumstances of life, I'm brought to the point where I really see my need for the Lord. This is the kind of bottom that Jonah has found. Now we have to be uh, clear here. Because we use the term rock bottom for a lot of different situations. Like if you think of J.K. Rowling, she's describing a, a rock bottom experience, one that was very difficult, but in that rock bottom experience, what happened for her is that she really found her strength, right? Like it was hard, it was difficult, but she, you know, she really just grit her teeth and she focused and she used all of her strength and energy to write this book about this kid and muggles and all this crazy stuff and then it made her millions. And we think, man, that, that's, that's the kind of rock bottom experience that I want. Right? I want to fail for a while, not that it wasn't difficult, but then through that, find my own strength and move on. But see, if that's all you find in that rock bottom experience, you, you haven't found the bottom that Jonah has found. Because for Jonah, he, he's recognized that, that all his strength, all his capacity to, to create some hope, to, to make some way forward in this life and certainly the life to come is gone. See, Jonah is, is struggling not just with worldly sorrow, but with genuine godly grief about his sin. He's recognizing that in of himself, he has no hope before the Lord. He's seeing clearly that everything he's tried to do to make things go well in life has not gone well. And that his only hope is to turn to the Lord. This is the essential dynamic of a human being that comes to faith where we recognize, maybe for the first time, or maybe we recognize again, that what we really need is, is help from God. That in of ourselves, we make a mess of things, that, that we continue to go against what is good for us. That even though maybe we've come to faith, we've strayed or we've forgotten that it's ultimately God who will bring hope into our lives. This dynamic of struggling with our own sin is one that we do again and again and is a challenge, one that drives us, is designed to drive us to the grace of God. Uh, there's a book I read uh, a number of years ago by a Swedish pastor. His name is Bo Geertz, which is a pretty great name. And uh, he, was, he ministered in the rural 
rural Sweden, so in the farmlands, that kind of thing. He wrote a novel about his experiences there. It was a fictional account, but kind of he was there. And I know what you're thinking. What a great, what a great premise for a book. Rural Sweden with pastor doing his work, but it actually is pretty compelling. Uh, the name of the book is called The Hammer of God, which kind of tells you what kind of book it is. It's really about him ministering to people who are coming to understand the Lord. There's one scene, though, where the pastor in the book, he's explaining to people, talking to them about the dynamic of our own struggle with our sin. And he gives the illustration of a man who buys a, a plot of land with a home on it. He moves into the house and he looks at the land and he says, you know, I want to I grow things for my family. I want it to be uh, fruitful, and so I need to clear the land. That's what you do, right? You get your wheelbarrow out, he got his spade, and he went, and he started to clear out the rocks. And he said, this is what happens when someone uh, comes to faith. When we start to get interested in the things of God, we, we all of a sudden see our lives as God sees us in light of the word of God and say, man, there, there actually is sin in my life. There are things that I'm doing that are not in keeping with what God says is best, and that's not good for me. I don't want that. So we begin to, like the man, pile up the, the stones into a wheelbarrow and he wheels it to the edge of his plot of land and dumps it and it's out of his field. And we, in like manner, we look first for those smaller sins, those things that are not right and that are obvious. Maybe things like our, our language or, or drinking too much or, or gossiping, something lying, something that's obvious, something that we know people can see in us and so we're grieved by it. We want to get rid of it. So we pile the stones up and we do it. But the thing is, day in, day out, the man goes back and there seems to be more and more stones in this field, right? He's digging down deep and there's, there's more rock there. And that's because there are certain sins that are easy for us to have victory over, but there are others that keep coming back. Usually the, the deeper sins, like pride, like a sense of self-focus, like lust. Things that even though we turn from them, we come back, they're there again. But then there comes a day when the man is digging in his field and his, his spade, it hits solid rock and he begins to scrape away, right? He's trying to find the edge of it to get some leverage to pry it up. And he comes to the, to the terrible realization that, that it's all rock, that all of his work, what he's done is just expose this granite shelf that runs all along underneath his field. And he realizes that there is no way that this can sustain any life. There's no fruitfulness here. And in the same way, we come to realize that our own heart, apart from God, is, is stone cold hard in our sin. And he says that man has three options. Number one, he can just sell the field. He can go and depart. And he says that's, that's what Judas did. He departed in unbelief. Spent three years with Jesus, seemed to have faith, but in the end, showed everyone that he never had saving faith. Because when it got difficult, when there was a... The depth of his sin was revealed, he turned, and he walked away. The second thing, though, is to take some uh, nice topsoil, you know, the really black topsoil, and just spread it around the top, right? Get some nice perennials, some flowers there with shallow roots, and just make it look nice. That's what Jonah did, right? Jonah, at the beginning of the voyage, if you remember, when the sailors talked to him, what does he say? He says, I follow the Lord, right? I know, I know the God who created the heaven and the earth. He makes a big show of saying, look, everything is fine. Everything's great in my life. I don't need to dig any deeper. The problem, of course, is that, that there won't ever be any real fruit there. The third option, though, the third option is to come to the, to the realization that it's only by God's grace that we will be saved. That because of the depth and the hardness of our heart, it's only God's grace. That it's nothing that we can do. 
that no matter how hard we sweat, no matter how hard we try to, to make ourselves right before the Lord, it is only ever the grace of God that will save us. And this is a good realization. This is a helpful and a central realization because what it shows us is the nature of who we are apart from God and directs us to the only hope that we can have. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, in speaking to a group of Christians in the book of uh, Ephesians, he, he describes how they were before they came to faith. He says this in Ephesians 2.12. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, that's what Jonah finally realizes about himself, that that's him. That's all of us. He realized that he was at the bottom. And I wonder if, if we realize that. For some of us, we may have realized that long ago, that yes, I need Jesus, and yet there's a pattern of a life where we, we keep trying to, to move forward on our own strength. And yet for others, we've never really come to that realization. And it may be that through the circumstances of your life that God is attempting to reveal to you the ultimate need that you have for God. See, this is where the rags to riches stories don't really fit here. Because there are many people that, that it seems like they have everything they need. They're healthy, wealthy, prosperous, successful, and yet, and yet there's a deep sadness within their heart. There's a longing for something more. And there are others on the flip side who we would look from the outside in and think, what, what hope do they have in this world? And yet because they know the Lord, they have, a, they have a passion, a hopefulness in life that goes beyond whatever circumstances we can see. It's something that God has done to, to save them and to, to give them a hope in this life and in the life to come. See, this is the, the beauty of God's salvation. That, that we see at the bottom our essential need for God and more than that. See, it's not just that Jonah landed there. It's that in that place, he turned to his only source of hope. And that's our second point. Jonah realized he was at the bottom, but secondly, Jonah finally realized that only God could save him. Because at the bottom, Jonah did the one thing that would bring help. He called out to the Lord. He prayed. Right, look again at verse two. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now this is the part where the fish enters the scene. Up to this point, Jonah has been floating in the water, or I guess sinking, and then finally, God hears his cry for help, and verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. See, the fish is God's salvation. And again, we wonder, well, how, how did that make things better exactly? Is it better to be in the intestines of a fish rather than the water? Apparently, yes, it is. Uh, normally, no, but by the hand of God, it is. God sent something, some creature that, that actually sustained his life. It was a miracle. And like all miracles, we, we don't know the details. We don't know exactly how the molecules of water changed into wine. We, do, we don't know that. But what the focus is on is on who did it. And here it's clearly on God. God is the one who saved Jonah. God is the one who, who brought salvation. This is a vivid picture of God's ultimate sovereign work of salvation in our lives, which is important. Because at times, there are those that would, that would teach and believe that, look, we are saved by God, but, but we partner with God in our salvation. 
right? That we come to the point of realizing what Jesus did for us on the cross, that's the gospel, that he needed to, to die and atone for our sins, to bring about a reconciliation between us and God, but it's us who figures that out in a sense, and we, we say yes. We say yes to Jesus, so we, we partner with God in our salvation. But that's not the picture we see here. We don't see God uh, you know, letting down a rope and then Jonah climbing up. We don't see Jonah kicking against the current and God towing him to safety. That's not the picture that we see here and throughout the Bible. The picture we see is of a lifeless, near-death Jonah, fearing for his physical life and his spiritual life, and then God rescuing him through his power and his strength. In fact, we see this in uh, the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now you, may, you might wonder and ask a fair question, which is, okay, Matt, I see that, but look, Jonah did pray, right? I mean, Jonah, Jonah called out to God. Isn't, isn't that him participating somehow? And the answer is yes, he did pray. In fact, that's an essential part of uh, the saving work of God in that we respond. Jesus said, repent, you must repent to come into the kingdom of heaven, which means you acknowledge your sin. That's what it means to come to faith. You say, Jesus, I, I realize that I've sinned against you, that only you have done this work for me and I receive that salvation. The thing to note, though, is that that prayer is a response to the preceding work of God in our lives. It's always God who moves first to save us. And we can actually see it in our text. Uh, if you look, so if I were to ask you the question, uh, why did Jonah pray? You would probably say, well, he's in the water. He's about to die. So of course he would pray. All of us would pray, yes. But why was he in the water about to die? Well, because he was thrown in the water. Well, why did he get thrown in the water? Because Jonah said to the sailors, look, if you want to live, you have to throw me in the water. And that's where I'd say, is that the full story? And you would say, yes. I remember, Matt, last week you told us. That's what happened. Look at verse 12. This is from last week, uh, chapter one. Jonah said to the sailors, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. But look at verse three of our text today. Once Jonah's in the water, looking back at that, what happened, he says this. For you, God, you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And so you're left wondering, well, which, which is it? And the answer is, it's both. It's both. That, that, yes, Jonah did say those words, but beneath that, at a deeper, more causal level, what Jonah recognizes is that God has been leading him to this point. Is that through God's sovereign hand, all throughout his life, and specifically in this situation, God has been leading him to the point where Jonah would be at the bottom where he would realize that he is in dire need of help, that he can't help himself, and that only God can save him. What we see here is a, is a window into the sovereign hand of God, that the Bible teaches again and again that God is working and orchestrating all of the events of life, of our lives, of the natural world, so that it would accomplish his purposes. Now, this does not minimize human beings. This does not make us into puppets or robots where all of our choices mean nothing. No, we see this affirmed in scripture that in fact, we make real choices, that we have real responsibility. But rather what we see is the heights of God's majesty and sovereignty 
that even through those choices, God is at work, that he is at work for his glory and for our good. The, the value of this is that it, it's in keeping with scripture, as I read in Ephesians, that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. But the other great value of this is that it means that our salvation is not in our hands. That for those of us who've come to faith and have, have seemingly departed from it or been in a season of sin or hard-heartedness, salvation is by the Lord and, and we cannot lose it. That it's by God's power and grace and so we are in his hands. This is the hope that Jonah has. That it's God alone who has saved him. There's another picture that I wanted to give you of this. Uh, it's, <clears throat> it's from a movie I saw, and uh, it's a, a great movie. Uh, there's only one cast member in the movie. Uh, the movie, movie is um, All is Lost, and Robert Redford is the only cast member. I really recommend you see it, except that I'm going to spoil the whole movie for you right now. So I apologize for that, but it, I have to tell you the whole thing to see the illustration. So um, the movie is this. Robert Redford is on a sailboat in the middle of the ocean. He's sailing around the world uh, solo, and uh, his boat cracks into a container from a ship that, you know, uh, fell off the edge of the ship, a big container floating in the ocean. And the whole movie is him then dealing with the aftermath, trying to, trying to patch up the boat, then, then that doesn't work. And so he, he realizes he's gonna have to abandon ship. And so he gathers all his things together. He inflates the, the life raft, puts everything into the life raft, all the water he can, all the food he can. Uh, and then he's in the life raft. He watches the boat sink and he's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and there's storms that come. There's, he's trying to fish for food. There's sharks. It's, it's just for weeks and weeks, he's trying to survive. He's, trying to, he's hoping that he'll get in the way of some ship that will see him. After a long time, his food is gone. His water is nearly gone. And there's this climactic scene where it's nighttime. And, and he's just, you can see he's exhausted. He's all sunburnt. He's, he's leached. Everything is dry. And just off in the distance, he sees an ocean liner. He can just make out the the lights of the ship. And he's too far away. He tries to yell that there's no way they can hear him. And so he makes the last desperate decision to light a fire in his, in his lifeboat. And, and he burns everything that he has. And he's, he's hoping that the light, they, they will see it in the darkness. And he's waving. And, and of course, as the signal fire is burning, his own life raft is burning up. And, and he plunges down into the water. It's all gone. And the last scene the last scene before the credits is just from beneath the water and you can see this, the light of the moon and, and he's exhausted and he slips down into the darkness. But just before the credits roll, there's a hand that plunges through the water and grabs him and lifts him up and then it's credits and you're like, oh, that was amazing. <laughs> so exhausting. And what we see there is, is a picture of the saving work of God. Same thing for Jonah. He was at that point of utter helplessness. I mean, yes, yes, Jonah did a bunch of stuff. Yes, Robert Redford did a bunch of stuff. I mean, he, but in the end, he was lost. And the only hope he had was that arm, not himself, that came down and grabbed him. And the same is true for us. That's why Jonah cries out at the end of his prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a cry of triumph and praise because it means that it's not on us to save ourselves. It means that, that God truly loves us. And that no matter our sin, that, that for Jonah, think of how far he went away from God. As soon as he turned back, God was there. God was ready to save him. See, Jonah has realized finally that he's at the bottom. He's realized 
that, that only God can save him. But the third thing, the last thing we see here is that Jonah experiences the joy of God's salvation. This is the real beautiful thing we see. That in every time when God saves someone, he saves them to a relationship. That he really loves us. That he wants to be in relationship with us. And for Jonah, for Jonah, like everyone in rebellion, he did not want a relationship with God. If you look back to verse 3, this is right at the beginning when he's running away from God. It says this, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. That's far away from where God wanted him to go. From the presence of the Lord. What it says there is that Jonah was literally running away from the temple. That, that's, that's, that symbolized the presence of God at that time. That they would, the people of God would go to the temple, they would, they would sacrifice, they would worship, they would experience the mercy and grace of God there at the temple. Jonah's saying, I don't want to be anywhere near that. I'm running away. This is, is this not us in our rebellion? Uh, teenagers run away from their parents. Kids, I remember, running away. I don't want anything to do with this family anymore. We run. And yet, at a certain point, we tend to realize that we've lost something that we need. And that's what happens with Jonah. If you look at verses 4, it says this, "Um, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And then in verse 7 through 8, Jonah says, And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. And there he's not saying that he's going to pay God back for what he did. What he's saying is that I'm going to do what the people of God uh, do at this time to show obedience and faithfulness and be in relationship with you, which is go to the temple and and make an offering of thanksgiving. Jonah is saying, "I, I, I want to be in relationship with you again. And what we see is that because of God's saving work, that is possible. See, when you're at the bottom, we generally feel quite alone. I mean, gen- most of the time, part of the, the difficulty of those rock-bottom experiences is that we feel isolated, we feel maybe uncared for, misunderstood. In our sin, that's certainly the case. That we feel as if not only are we alienated from God, but there's no way of going back. But here what we see is that there's, there's always a way of going back because of Jesus. See, back then it was the temple that you would go to and there would be sacrifices made and you'd be right with God through that, but the temple is gone. Now we have a better temple. It's Jesus himself who went to the cross and died on it to take the penalty of our sin, thus clearing our debt with God. And then not only did he die for us, but he rose again giving us the, the clear picture that we too who believe in him will have life forevermore. And in that, it's not, just, it's not just great that I'll be alive, it's that I now have relationship with the Father, with, with God himself. And what this means for us is that whatever your situation is right now, whether you've never come to faith, whether you've, you've had faith and you've, there's some area of sin in your life, God's answer to you when you turn back to him is always the same. Which is, which is, I love you. Which is, uh, my arms are open. I want to I welcome you back into the fold. Now, this is made very, very clear uh, in the New Testament by Jesus. And I'm just going to end with this last uh, story that he tells, one you've probably heard of. It's the story of the prodigal son. Because the prodigal son is a lot like Jonah. Now, the prodigal son is a young son who says to his father, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going my own way. Give me my inheritance. And he does. 
He runs away from his father, just like Jonah. He goes to the city. He squanders his wealth. He, he thinks he's riding high, and yet once his money's gone, he's very, very low. He's eating with pigs, and he, and he comes to the realization, look, if I went back to my dad, at least I would have a job. I don't deserve to be his son anymore, but, but I could at least get three square meals a day. But he's very surprised when he goes back. This is what it says in Luke 15. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see that this is always God's attitude when we turn back to him. No matter what we've done, no matter where we are, who we are, God always celebrates and rejoices and welcomes us back with an affectionate, loving disposition. It's very true that at the bottom is where we experience the grace of God, but it's also true that in his love, we never stay there, that he lifts us up, that he saves us and brings us into relationship with him so that we might enjoy a life experiencing his saving work. And so in light of this beautiful picture, this compelling picture of Jonah, the word for us this morning is, is have we turned back? Have we seen the, the bottom, wherever it is? For some of us, we've never come to faith. This may be a day where there's, there's things stirring and you're wondering, what would that look like? Well, it looks like this. It looks like confessing your sin, trusting in Jesus for your salvation and experiencing the joy of God's salvation. But for many who have faith already, it's a return. It's a turning away from sin, returning to the Lord, trusting, knowing that his attitude towards us is one of love because he is both powerful and gracious. So let's pause in prayer and then we'll celebrate together. God, thank you so much for this, this picture of your love and your grace. Thank you, God, that in Jonah we have not just the, the true uh, fantastic story of Jonah's experience, but also, Lord, we see uh, what it means for all of us to come to the end of ourselves. And God, I pray for each one here. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to see that most clearly? And God, would you help us to walk most faithfully not upon our own strength or our own efforts to deal with our sin, but, but solely upon the work of Christ. Lord, I pray that for those of us who are experiencing those bottom times where things are just so very low and so very difficult, Lord, and, and that can be true of many of us at all sorts of seasons of life. God, I just pray that in your grace, you would comfort us with this word and lead us back to yourself. Strengthen us, please. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.